night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is award-winning journalist Nancy Rommelman, author of To the Bridge, A True Story of Motherhood and Murder. In 2009, Amanda Stott-Smith dropped her two children from a bridge. Her four-year-old son died while her seven-year-old daughter survived. Stott-Smith was arrested a few hours later and is serving a 35-year prison sentence. Almost a decade later, after years of investigation, journalist Nancy Rommelman chronicles this tragedy in a delicately balanced piece of reporting, illuminating and offering a deep and nuanced look into how such a crime can occur, with perhaps even hope of averting future incidents. Uh, Nancy is featured in the New York Times, LA Weekly, and the Wall Street Journal. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here today. Catherine, thank you for having me and for that beautiful introduction. One of the things in the introduction uh, which struck me was that you wrote the book in the hopes of averting future incidents like this. So how can you do that? I mean, this book is not a, a whodunit book, but why it was done and how it was done. And well, that's right. It was never a whodunit. It was a, you know, a why done it. Um, I think our obligation as journalists is to follow these hard stories where they go, um, you know, to sort of act as a set of trusted eyes for the reader. And if that winds up offering illumination, you know, all the better. I, I, did, I can't say I went in with that particular agenda. I just went in to try to tell the story as best I could so that I could offer some understanding as to how this kind of thing happens. So when you say you didn't go in with that agenda, what was your agenda? I mean, what's your interest? Why, what interests you about these kinds of stories? Because you have written so stories in the past that involve tragedies. And, of course, this is the ultimate tragedy, I think. Um, so what, what did, why are you interested? What was your agenda? I'm, I'm always interested in stories that are being reported a certain way and do not seem that way at all to me. For instance, let's say in, in this case, and as is predictable, Amanda did what she did, the mob comes out, they brand her crazy or evil and, you know, let's string her up from a bridge, or um, they say, we're never going to understand how this happens. As an investigative journalist, none of those things answer the question to me. I wanted to really look back into her life, the lives of her family, the lives of the community, and figure out how this sort of tragedy happens before our eyes. Um, and so that's what I set out to do. That was really my only agenda, was to try to understand. So how did you get into the story? How did you first, I mean, you were interviewing family. I mean, this is a woman who attempted to kill her two children. It's like right. the unspeakable. It's, it's, it is the unspeakable. So start, start with how did you interject yourself into the story? Well, it, it's very interesting that you say unspeakable because at the beginning no one would speak to me. It's just too difficult. I've never been the sort of journalist that, you know, camps on someone's lawn and, and puts a microphone in their face. So I, I followed it, you know, a little bit of a distance, going all the court dates, doing my good due diligence as a journalist, and then approached people slowly and respectfully. Sometimes they wouldn't speak right away, but eventually most of them did. I had a lot of people come to me once she was sentenced, and um, there had been no trial, so they were not able to, you know, say for the public record what they knew and thought they knew, and they needed to tell someone the story. And, you know, when you have 30, 40, 50 people bringing you pieces of the story, you're able to tell the story. But it does take a while. It takes a while. 
Now, you also, as I understand it, you became close to one of the attorneys was, and was able, were able to sort of get information in that way, too. Yes, Amanda's defense attorney was um, appointed by the state. He's a capital defense attorney, so all of his cases involve the possibility of the death penalty. And he's just a terrific guy who's been doing his job well, a very hard job for 35 years, and while he could, of course, not betray uh, you know, anything his client, Amanda, wouldn't want me to be told, he was very helpful to me in you know, understanding the system and, and just being a pal in general and um, acting as sort of a guide for me during much of the story. So in other words, you had to understand, obviously, how the legal system worked, He was, and that was something that obviously he could uh, share with you. Um, who was the first person you spoke to who wasn't? An, who the wasn't, first person that yeah. reached out to me was, the, you know, Amanda's son who died was Elton. He was four years old. The first person that reached out to me was his best friend's mother about a week after the crime and she had seen, I was blogging about it, and she found me and wanted to talk about Eldon and what she knew. And she turned out to be um, a very important person in the story because we, we get to know this little boy who's no longer with us a bit through him, her and her son. What was the first thing she said to you? She said that she was very disappointed in the reaction from the school. You know, when we talk about things that are unspeakable, the school basically sent home a little email saying, you know, we regret to inform you, and then that was it. And nobody would talk about it, and it just it just killed her. She just had to talk about it. Um, another thing she said to me is, you know, she did not know Amanda well. She had known her. It was another class parent. And she said to me she thought Amanda was a broken person, and that's why she did what she did. Okay, so having that information, Amanda is a broken person, that says a lot. I mean, it's a general kind of a statement. So then you go from there, I assume. How was she broken? Exactly. So Amanda was broken uh, in, in many ways, and I think quite deliberately so by her, um, her ex-husband, the father of the children. Uh, he, there was a lot of mental abuse in the relationship. She was also someone who I think was a fighter. She doled out um, a certain amount of abuse herself. Um, but as the years went on, uh, it, was a, it was a pitched battle. And um, at a certain point, he'd gained a lot of ground, and she'd lost a lot. And when you say a broken person, you know, what does that mean? It means you've lost um, pieces of your identity uh, and, and also physical things. She'd lost her home, and she no longer had custody of her children. And um, she was a broken person to a certain extent, sure. So she didn't have custody of, of, of the children, So, but at some point, obviously, she had the children, certain visiting rights, I assume, um, because she took these two children and dropped them from the bridge. Um, what led up to that point? I mean, how was she with the children alone? Um, was she allowed to be well, with in, the children alone? In, in the yeah. summer of 2008, Jason had left the marriage and left her with the two younger children, plus her, uh, Amanda's son, uh, from a previous relationship. And then toward the end of the summer, when he entered rehab and felt he was clean, he started to take the children for longer and longer periods. And then in February of 2009, he just didn't bring them back. And she tried to get them back and went to court. And uh, he had more money and more power than she did and a family that could back him. And she just kept losing them by degrees. And then he had provisional custody. She had every other weekend visitation. And during the second or third weekend of those, that visitation, is when she dropped them from the bridge. 
what do you think what was the at that particular point i mean obviously it was a breaking point was there something that set her off or was just this sort of i don't a series of just as you say just things began to crumble and her life fell yeah it's it's interesting that you say that because for a while i thought what did jason and his mother who was with him at the time what did they say to her you know at that at that last handoff of the children was it something that broke the camel's back um i think that she had for a longer period of time been thinking of ways to hurt him as much as she perceived that he had hurt her so i don't think it was one thing that set it off i think it was a feeling of i don't have anything left to fight with and i'm going to use these children as a weapon so yes there is a revenge element but there is a great deal more and i think when people read the book they will see how people are robbed of who they believe they are inch by inch and what the result of that can be yeah so as you say inch by inch it's not simply something that happens in the moment say she's in a rage or in a fight with her ex-husband or in a fight with anybody, a uh, significant person, and then she takes the kids and, and you know, uh, does what she did. Uh, but it's, it's, a, it's a slow process because I'm sort of bringing that back to one of the goals of the book or one of the things that you say is, you know, hoping to prevent it in the future. So what should we be looking for? Let's talk about maybe some of the, you know, you mentioned the uh, mother of the son who was a friend of the little boy, but other people that you spoke to, were there other people who may have had the chance to intervene or had more information that they just didn't share or were afraid to share about well, Amanda? Yeah. In Amanda's case, um, she had for years been, you know, increasingly isolated from her, her support system, her friends and her family. Uh, Jason definitely did not want her interacting with her friends. He didn't want her family. She didn't want her, see her seeing her family. He, he didn't want her family seeing their children. So she had a smaller and smaller group of people who were sort of telling her what to do and who she could count on. At this point, she was also began drinking more. She began neglecting her children more. People within the families that knew something disastrous was going on in many ways were charmed out of believing what they thought they were seeing was actually what they were seeing. Some people felt cowed. Some people felt threatened. And Amanda lived in a smaller and smaller circle of people that could reach out to her. Some people that did stay close with the family told me the most unbelievable stories of, I mean, things I can't say on the air, of abuse and drugs and, um, and really just humiliating, deliberately humiliating her so that she was smaller and smaller in everyone's eyes. So, you know, it happens. It does happen inch by inch, but eventually, you know, it's you're off the cliff. So smaller and smaller, and the word isolation, isolating her, isolating her emotionally, maybe even physically, and disconnecting her from, the, as you say, from her supports. Now, as a social worker, you know, as part of the system, was there anybody in in the system, a, a social worker, a psychologist? She she was an al she had an alcoholism problem. Any of those people who could have done something? Or well, I can yeah. tell you, you know, Amanda's family was extremely concerned, um, but they had been so pushed out of her life. Um, but toward the end, when she no longer had a place to live, she was living with her parents, and her mother, who is a registered nurse, 
tried desperately to get Amanda into treatment um, for alcoholism and not, and not alcoholism, for depression and for an eating disorder. And Amanda just kept checking herself out. Um, you know, one reason being Jason wanted her very thin. So if she gave up her eating disorder, then, you know, her husband wasn't going to come home and she wanted him to come home. She was also drinking a great deal at that point. In terms of, you know, social services, social services were were called on this family, you know, at least 10 or 12 times over a 10-year period. But, you know, you have to, you will appreciate this as a social worker. You know, if you're able to get away with all of this stuff in front of your friends and your family and your, your employer, the social worker shows up one time, the house is clean, the booth has been put away. How do they, how do they make the right judgment? Yeah, um, uh, the family is prepared for the show. I mean, I, that's that's true. I mean, because it's really almost it's not impossible. But what kind of given those circumstances, are there any clues that someone like a social worker could pick up on? Because you do know that when you go in and you see if obviously they're ready for you, they know you're coming. Uh, usually they know you're coming. And so you're right. The house is picked up. Everything is as much order as it can be. But there can be little clues sometimes. And I wondered if there were any that Well, there you know, had became, been earlier. There had yeah. been clues. I mean, when Gavin, who was Amanda's you know, first child from a pre- previous relationship, um, he had bruising um, uh, on, you know, from hip to knee when he was about five or six years old. And that was reported. Um, and you know, they basically realized it was maybe they call it excessive discipline on the uh, part of Jason and you know nothing really happened um he had Gavin had bruises on his arms the summer before this all happened from his mother but of course he lied he lied and said oh I think I got it roughhousing with my friends but he also lied because his mother was a wreck she was drinking and there was this you know this six and four year old in the house that he was trying to take care of so if you tell the social worker lady what's really happening who takes care of those kids I mean, it's 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 really is tragic on a on a granular level, but it happens. Yeah, it does happen, and it and, and I know, and just from the social work profession, they always tend to sometimes blame the social worker. You should have seen this. You should have been able to do something. There have been a couple of recent cases in New York City, uh, not the same, obviously, but similar kinds of cases. So uh, it is difficult. Um, what about now? Her daughter. Survived. Now that's 2009. We're talking almost 10 years. Um, where is she now? So, um, you know, ethically for a journalist, it's a little it's a little tricky to sometimes um, speak with minors if their families are not um, in favor of that. So I have not I have not seen Trinity in many years. I haven't seen her since a, a boat dedication uh, in her and her brother's name years ago. Um, my last <clears throat> excuse me full word I got on her, she was doing well living with her paternal grandmother. I can tell you from what I know of Trinity, and readers will definitely meet her in the book, she was a very spirited little girl. I mean, this little girl saved her own life by screaming in the dark in a moving river for 40 minutes. And, um, you know, let's, let's just please hope that she is a survivor and, and doesn't get stuck in the victim box and, uh, and can push through all this. No, you, you said she was with her paternal grandmother and, and I always sometimes wonder sometimes the the children in in cases like this um, go with the maternal grandmother who raised the person who attempted to um, you know uh, murder right. the children and so it's kind of like well who is this woman you mentioned that she is an RN a nurse 
what kind of background did Amanda come from? I mean, we well, were talking, um, yeah. I have one thing to say about that first. So very unfortunately, and for reasons that I, I, many people don't think are legitimate, Jason's family, Jason and his family never again allowed Trinity to see anyone in her mother's family or the half-brother with whom she'd been raised. And this has really been the tragedy of this young children's lives, just tragedy compounding tragedy. Um, they have their own reasons for that, and uh, people can read about it and decide for themselves what they think of that. In terms of Amanda's family, Amanda came from a fairly middle-class family. Her father you know, is, works in an, an industrial paper plant. She has a younger sister. Her mother became a registered nurse later in life. They're, they're very Christian. They um, belong to a small, non-denominal, national Christian church. Um, you know, Amanda had a pretty normal upbringing. You know, played the piano, good cook, good singer, good at math. Um, but at a certain point, I think probably around the time she went to college, things started to get a little um, a little out of hand for her. So at that point, she started making, I'm assuming, poor choices, whatever those choices were, you say, when she got to college, because she had a pretty typical, as you know it, growing up. But th th I also think maybe there's something maybe that we don't know about, some kind of internal chemistry that's always there that that that's part of the the whole picture, you know, the whole nature-nurture thing, but it's not simply how you were raised, but your own ability to be resilient. Um, resilient and also, you know, to, to, make, to have free will. You know, you have agency. A lot of people have told me they believed Amanda was a narcissist. I think she was, uh, people can see there's a, a second mugshot in the book from when she was, her one, an earlier arrest when she was about 21. She's an absolutely stunningly beautiful young woman, and um, I think she wanted nice things in her life and thought that one of the ways to do that was to be beautiful and to be loved. And, um, and then Jason came in and, and, you know, said, you're beautiful and loved and I will take care of you. Um, but it was, things were not what they seemed. And I think they kind of fell into a mutual trap. Um, and one she, at the end, was not able to get out of, and, and he was. He had the means, he had the family support to get out, and he took it. Just as this would be just a conjecture, but what do you think in terms of he had the power for what I mean? As you're talking, you know, he had family. Uh, it sounds like more money, more all of those kinds of things that allowed him to to be the one who to take control. How do you think it would have been if if she were in that same kind of a position? Do you think things would have been different? Could you repeat that last part, please? I was. Do you think things would have been different if, like, her family? Uh, and she and her parents had the same kind of power that his parents did and that he did, whether it had to do with work or money or whatever. Catherine, I think you're yeah. exactly right. I think it would have been different because Amanda's family was intimidated um, by Jason's family. By uh, I'll just give you an example. I was told by many people that after Eldon was killed, um, the, the Amanda's family was told that if they came to the funeral, they would be arrested. And this is just, you know, an absolute cruelty. It probably wasn't true. There probably was no restraining order taken out against them. But they believed it, and they had been in this situation for a decade with um, Amanda and her, her husband, and they did not have the money. They did not have the... They were not as intimidating. And, um, yeah, I think things would have been different had they... <laughs> this is a terrible thing to say, but had both sides had the same amount of weaponry so to speak, but they didn't. Yeah, so for now, I'm just getting into your, I mean, having written this book, um, it has to, I assume, have changed you in some way. Um, 
and how did it do that? I mean, you know, being first of all so in- involved in well, all of the characters in the book, all of the, the you know the the stories that unfolded. But how did they change? How did it change you? Well, you know, when you when you walk into any story, you have to you kind of have to have empathy for everybody. You don't know anybody. You don't know what's going on. You don't know their motivations. Um, you know, as I spent you know months and then years on this book, uh, my positions on certain people changed. There were certainly moments of <laughs> anger, um, certainly moments of deep sadness. Um, as I've said before, you know, hanging out in the neighborhood where mothers kill their children is not the nicest place to be sometimes. Um, I, you know, I've been writing about human nature now and, and the things that people do for, for so many years. This was just taking it to the extreme. Um, uh, but I, it's still what I want to do. I still want to tell people stories, you know, whatever they're doing and, and trying to find, find the reasons and, and bring it to other people so that when we do hear about stories like this, we don't say we'll never understand it and close the door because I, I don't really think that gets us anywhere. Yeah. yeah, I agree with you. I don't think it does. I think one of the topics that you covered or you talk about is, is suicide in relation to, uh, I guess, in relation to Amanda, like killing your own children is like in a certain way. Well, maybe I'd like you to describe it because it was an interesting point that you made. Um, maybe the mother herself was suicidal but kills her children, and that's a form of suicide. Right. It, it is. Scholars can argue that um, you know mothers who kill their children rarely succeed uh, in committing suicide because they've already killed what's most important to them, thereby you know, rendering their suicide redundant. There may be something to that, and Amanda was caught while jumping off the ninth floor of a parking garage. Um, however, women kill for a variety of reasons. You know, there's um, the sort of psychotic, we, we can't really explain it, the Andrea Yates. There's the children were inconvenient. There's the, you know, what we want to term the altruistic suicide I mean, the altruistic suicide, thinking the children will be better off dead than, you know, left in a, in a situation the mother perceives as, as worse. Someone said to me, Nancy, do you, do you think every single mother that kills her child is mentally ill? And I said, well, if you, if you want to believe that, you have to extend that to every single person who commits a crime is mentally ill. Um, you know, people act very badly for a variety of reasons. Um, and this is just a really tough one for us because it's maybe one of the last taboos, right? You know, we just can't go there. It just makes no sense. Yeah, there are mothers also who, uh, well, they go off the cliff with their children. Uh, yeah. The, yeah, that, and that's a different kind of a suicide or I guess a different motive or, you know, I think there was one just recently who drove off a cliff in a, in a car with her kids um, oh, that's a very interesting story. The Hart family, that took place in Oregon as well. And um, that, that parent um, was deeply um, sociopathic and had been really on the run while presenting this wonderful face to the community. There's some similarities with what happened in Jason and Mar- um, Amanda's marriage. Um, but, yeah, that's a, that's a terrifying story of presenting very well in public, but underneath it's just it's a disaster. And she was about to be caught about by the authorities, and um, she just chose to take the entire family out. And I'm thinking of another story, and it was interesting. It was this, and I think you mentioned this, but uh, the 
is it Susan Smith who mm-hmm. drove the car into the lake and her two children drowned? She survived. And I remember seeing her on television in the news and turning to my friend and saying, she's lying. I mean, she her story, what, I, I can't remember the exact story that she made up, but it was so obvious that she was not telling the truth, that she had deliberately done that. Um, I mean, I think if, you know, I was just thinking about... Uh, women or just anybody who's done this these kinds of crimes sometimes you really can tell um they're whether they're covering up or what their motives are even what they're going to do beforehand by just simply body language and the way the person presents themselves i mean you can look for those kinds of clues i guess before and after the fact well you know people that do these things you know it's just like a bank robber or whoever they think oh yeah i've come up with the perfect crime and it's just you know you know, in hindsight, it's just absolutely absurd that they thought that they would get away with this. In Susan Smith's case, um, she, you know, undid the parking brake and let those little boys roll into the lake, apparently because she was having an affair with someone who, you know, liked her but didn't want any kids. So that was her solution. I mean, this is, you know, and, and we're going to believe her. Um, but, yeah, uh, people do this for a variety of reasons. They may think that they somehow justify them in their minds, but when we look at them, we're like, no. No, it's never justifiable. Drop the kids at a fire station, you know. Don't don't do this. But how? Let's get back to you, like personally, like how do you approach this? And I know you did, and you do when you write these kinds of stories, and separate yourself so that you're not judgmental. Well, I just don't think my okay. So I've been very fortunate. Um, I've been able to write for some absolutely wonderful publications and wonderful editors, and I've been told. Um, you know, Nancy, I really like your work because you never tell me what to think. And that's true because, you know, I'm just going to assume you're as smart or smarter than me. You can make your own decisions. Um, but, but people do need to remember who put the story together. And, you know, I am constructing the story in a certain way to tell it in the most effective way for the reader. Um, you know, I am in that story, but I'm never going to lead you to a judgment. You're, you know, people are going to read this book and you know, Joe might think this and John might think that, and that's great. I don't want us to all come to the same exact conclusion. I want to give you the information, you're going to have some understanding, and then you can make the decision for yourself. A great book, a great, I don't want to say a great story, a great, a, a great book, we'll put it at that, and something I think that that uh, my listeners should read. Uh, we have a couple minutes left. Nancy Rommelman is the journalist who wrote the book, and the title is To the Bridge, A True Story of Motherhood and Murder. And you can, as, as Nancy says, come to your own conclusions, because we all come from different places ourselves, so we're reading the book through a different filter. Um, Nancy, where can we, what website can we go to and uh, to mo- learn more about the book and, and you? And, it, and I assume it can be sold, it, it is sold at bookstores everywhere oh, and online. Oh, yeah, it, it, it's yeah. the easiest place to get it is on Amazon.com. You can also go to my website, which is nancyrom, N-A-N-C-Y-R-O-M-M.com. I can learn, see more of my work and um, read more about the book, and there's a little button right there that takes you right through to Amazon to buy it. I'm on Twitter at nancyrom, N-A-N-C-Y-R-O-M-M. And, um, yeah, I, I, I'd love to see you on Twitter. <laughs> great. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show to, today and, and sharing the story. Great. I'm Catherine Zock, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zock Show.
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Market Smart founder and CEO Greg Warner. We're going to be t- engagement fundraising, how to raise more money for less in the 21st century. That's his new book. Although last year saw charitable giving rise 5.2% from the previous year, if you want a piece of the pie for your own organization, you need to grab innovation by the horns, especially when it comes to marketing and communicating to long-term and high-yield donors. Driven by a personal passion to help nonprofits and philanthropic ventures make the most of their marketing efforts, Greg Warner challenges the norm and uh, building a dedicated following of organizations such as the Special Olympics, Boys and Girls Clubs, World Wildlife Federation, and the Salvation Army. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Greg. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Well, you say... As I said in the introduction, you are driven by a personal passion to help nonprofits and philanthropic ventures. Now, what is that personal, where, where did that come from, that personal passion? Why do you want to help nonprofits make money? Well, it's really from my past experience of trying to raise money um, or to give money, trying to give money <laughs> to organizations that actually make it hard to give. Uh, my wife is an insulin-dependent diabetic, and she's been dependent on insulin for, well, since she was about nine. Uh, she's had lots of complications, and uh, that is what first inspired me to give money to certain causes. And uh, the, the, the love that we gave those organizations that we were hoping would would find a cure, um, and of course, a cure is, is a tough challenge, but 
we didn't get much love back from those organizations. <clears throat> Excuse me. So uh, that fueled my passion to try and figure out uh, what's really wrong with this sector. Why, why is giving in the U.S. stuck at just 2% of GDP, which isn't bad, by the way. It's better than a lot of other countries. Yeah, I was going to say the United States does have a reputation for giving billions of dollars uh, and also time and money and sometimes both. Yep. But now what? Okay, that was your personal, you, I guess, connection to a nonprofit that you wanted to feel good about and make donations. And obviously you had a very personal interest in it. But what was your professional background at the time? Right. So this was a marketing agency that was designed to sell uh, uh, marketing campaigns to private sector businesses so that they would generate, or we on their behalf would generate highly qualified leads for sales teams. Here's the problem. If you've ever seen the movie Glen Gary, Glen Ross, that's kind of going back a ways. Uh, but everybody uh, in sales always wants better leads. They always look at the leads and say they're no good from that come from marketing. They want better leads so that they can close more deals. And what we were doing was generating leads for sales teams and making sure that they were highly qualified. Right. So now you have your own company, Market Smart, and you want to do something that's different. You, you're saying, and I, I actually do agree with you. I'm somebody who likes to donate to my favorite causes, and I sometimes feel, as you described, like with your, with your wife, they don't really get it. I mean, they are, they don't really know how to get my money. They're doing it in this kind of old school <laughs> way, and they could do a much better job. And but that for some reason they're not. Some are better than others. I'm not going to necessarily say which ones. But I've been engaged or involved with a, a lot of different agencies, and they they just don't get. I mean, what about the ones who's okay? Let's we should take it step by step because you do have the steps, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, well, and just real quick. So, bottom line to answer your original questions is, I'm a ticked off donor. Because I, I, I don't see it and just say, okay, well, I'll just keep giving my money even though the experience stinks. I looked at it and I said, well, hold on. I could change my marketing business and help these charities do a lot better, which will be nice for the donors. It'll be nice for their board and their leadership, and it'll be nice for the fundraiser. Everybody will be happy, plus they'll lower their costs. And that's what I set out to do, and that's what we're doing, and it's, it's really scaling nicely. All right, let's talk about what not to do. Maybe we should talk about don't what not to do first and then what to do. Give us an example. Sure. C- company Q, or you can name a company if you want to, but like wants money from you for a specific whatever it is, health, you name it. And what what is not a good approach and what makes you a tipped yep. off donor? Okay, there's so many. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's take so let's five. Put an umbrella. Yeah, let's put an umbrella over it and say, and I call this fundraising friction. So uh, many organizations, institutions will create a barrier, in fact, or, or at least friction to the giving process. And, and one of those is, for instance, that they'll just send you emails and uh, letters always asking for money. Well, and, and you might say to yourself, well, how is that friction? I mean, they're asking for money. Well, because most people want something in return for their money. 
They want good feelings. They want a warm glow. They want to know where the money goes. They want to see the pretty face of the little girl that was helped, you know, the family that was supported. They, they want that. Okay, so just asking for money and doing it in an expensive, interruptive, annoying, sometimes offensive way that you didn't opt in to receive is, is really not nice. It's off-putting, it's unfair, it diminishes trust. So the umbrella over the whole thing is creating fundraising friction, uh, and then there's all these little little spokes from that wheel that I kind of just named here. Uh, I mean, here's a, a perfect example is that there's a massive growth in, in what's called donor-advised funds. These are where wealthy people essentially put money in these funds uh, with Fidelity or Schwab and Vanguard, all these, instead of creating their own family foundations, because this way it's a lot easier uh, to create, just online. But most organizations only have a Donate Now button for credit card giving on their websites. Very few have a button so that donors with a donor-advised fund can give directly from that fund. They tend to be wealthy. The average gift tends to be $4,000. The reason I know is because I invented a widget that I give away to all the charities in the world for free to put on their website so that they can get more donor-advised fund gifts in addition to just getting the regular $100 or $50 here and there with their regular Donate Now button. So that's just one area where you can reduce friction and make it easier for people to give and give the way they want to give. Okay, that, 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 that is one way, but I want to go back a little to something you said because connection. I, I, I've, you know, how do you make connections? People want to be connected. They want to see the little girl who's, you know, who got her medicine because you donated so that she could get her medicine or her surgery or, or whatever it is, right? Or, uh, help yeah. the child go to college. Uh, so people want to have a connection because I think another problem is, and there are so many now organizations that you can give to online globally. It's not just in your community anymore or even in the United States. So there's a lot of competition. So you got to, don't you have to stand out? Don't you have to do something that's kind of creative or unique or different? Because wow, this is, there are lots of organizations that can, you know, help kids go to school or help kids get better health care. Why would I pick your organization would be my question. Yep, and the, the good news is that, no, you don't have to be creative. That's, that's, that's the easy part, uh, because you don't have to come up with some new Picasso-like innovation that will you know, draw people in. That's not it. It's so easy to, do, to, to zag when everybody else is zigging, so to speak, because everybody else is just asking for money and spamming and junk mailing their donors and not giving them good feelings in return. Using it's really about the law of reciprocity and providing value. So the way to stand out is to make sure that your communications with your supporters and especially, especially the high value, the the wealthiest of of those in your database, concentrate mostly on them and give them a VIP experience that provides value. So if you stand out, but which you can do by making your communications personalized, 
and I don't mean just putting their name on there, relevant based on what they've told you about themselves and their interests, and we'll, we'll get to that. I'll, I'll explain how you get that. But make your communications valuable based on what the donors want and always give to them. So give them a video of, of, of you know, in real time, maybe even a live stream on Facebook. Show them what you're doing with the money, the playground that you're building, you know, the new kitchen that, that, or the new stove that was put in and, and so on. That that's sense? a good it's point. You know, that's an ex- I want to stop you there because that is a really that's a good point. I think very often, and I've had a. I mean, I'm I'm a, a better donor than I am fundraiser. <laughs> I'm not good at asking for money, but I'm always listening to the different organizations that I traditionally give to. And one of the things that they get stuck in, I think, is that they constant they they tell you all about what the organization is doing some of which i'm not really interested in because as you say it's not personalized it's not my area that i really want to hone in on so i you know i'm sort of sitting there yawning i know this already i know it's a good organization well here's one one that you've been giving to for a long time and then they want you really to up the ante so why how do you get the the donor to up the ante to give more because i know i like this you don't have to prove to me that uh well yeah you know, for in my case, I say even Planned Parenthood, that it's an organization that I would want to give to. Why should I give to it now? I mean, I, or why should I give so much more than maybe I've given in the past? Yeah, so, so this is the thing that most organizations miss, that, again, you can stand out if you just, if you just do what's counterintuitive. But frankly, to us donors, it's very, it's very simple, is you don't brag. Nobody likes a braggart. You don't go bragging and thinking that people are going to give you money. What you do is you tell the donor how awesome they are and you make them feel awesome by showing them what you did with the money that made them awesome. See, it's not the organization that's awesome. It's the donor that's awesome for having given to make the organization do what the donor wanted them to do with their money. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. I just had an, as, actually as an example of that, I won't necessarily say what organization it was, but I, I feel that it's very important. It's important to me and, and I, and, and whatever I'm able to give, I feel is substantial. And each year they do ask for more and I don't necessarily up the ante very much, but they are always, always so appreciative. And they're a big organization, and they're not somebody who keeps saying, well, can you do more than that? Can you do more? They really are very committed to whatever you give more each year, that that's a good thing. And they, and I, I, I do, I like that. And then it actually does motivate me. Maybe I should give a little bit more. But they always, you know, whatever it is, um, it's, a, it's a big thank you. Yeah, so they clearly show that they appreciate you. And that makes you feel appreciated, <laughs> which is a good feeling, which is something, an outcome that you desire, okay? Because chemicals in your brain go off and you feel good and you feel appreciated, so you're more likely to give them more. I mean, that's just w- one simple thing to do, and it's, it's human basic kindness is that if someone gives you a gift, you show them appreciation, thank them. Yeah. And here's another Without thing. Without a doubt. Yeah. 
if you are, you have the company, you're the expert. One thing as a donor that I don't like is when people, when they, I'm being pressured and pressured and then maybe I give in and then I hang up the phone and I think, you know, I really didn't want to do that. Um, I think sometimes yeah. political organizations tend to do that more than anything. And I feel really yep. bad. It makes me, I'm never giving to this organization again. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Sure. That's hit and run and spray and pray, but mostly hit and run. Uh, the, the belief is that uh, if you hit the nail with a hammer enough times, it'll finally go through the piece of wood. So there, the, the concept is, and this is old school fundraising, is you just keep pounding. Don't worry. You know, and, and unfortunately, the leadership and the board members uh, pretty much force the fundraisers to do this. They're like, no, 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 hit him again. Hit him again. We'll get him to bleed, you know, and the money will come out. Shake it loose. Not very nice. Nobody likes it. Or, like, at private schools and whatnot, I know in, in my town, they have these, like, shaming events where you don't even know, you think you're going to do a good thing and just, you know, be around people. And next thing you know, they, they, they do an auction and then they shame you because you're not given and it's just, it's awful, right? So these pressure tactics are kind of similar to what they used to do in the boxing in tactics of selling Encyclopedia Britannica. I don't know if you remember those days, my parents got boxed in and they basically say, uh, they ask you these questions that, 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 you're screwed. It's like, you care about chil- your children, right? Well, yeah, right. And you care about their education, well, right? Right, yeah. And you care about them doing well on classes and, and everything, right? So surely you would feel that you need the right kinds of books for your students, your children, in order for them to succeed. And without that, they're going to die, right? And you're like, okay, okay, I'm buying the books. <laughs> and then the salesperson leaves, the books are on the shelf. And what do you have? You have a remorse. So donor remorse is what happens in the fundraising sector, and it happens all the time. In fact, the data shows that for every 100 new donors that an organization generates, this is on average, nonprofits lose about 101 donors. So it it balances, I guess it equalizes or it balances out, that's what you're saying? Well, they end up bringing new in, and they end up losing, losing is ma- exactly exactly 1% of what they brought in. So they're losing, in fact, and this is because the rich are getting richer. So what's happening is the average folks, there's less of them, you know? There's less of them that can give in our society in America. Most of the giving, in fact, 20, about 28 to 30%, it fluctuates, of all charitable donations, dollar-wise, are coming uh, from, from, hold on, let me get the stat right. Yes, from one-tenth of one percent of Americans, 28 to 30 percent of all dollars, coming from one-tenth of one percent. So you're saying because we have a shrinking middle class and the wealth are getting wealthier, getting wealthier, and the poor are getting poorer, it's the... The wealthier that ha- that are twenty eight percent, you said that's a lot. Um, yeah. So so organizations are slowly eroding. They're losing donors, even if their revenues are going up. So we see it in the data that the revenues might be going up, but that's because the rich are giving more. But the number of donors is going down. 
What uh, that uh, a question? I have a question for you. What a, another question, um, sort of related to something else? How does the internet affect donating? Not just because you can do it quickly and you can do it anywhere in the world, but you as a donor. There can be no tricks of the trade because as a donor, I can look this up. I can look up and see, okay, the, yep. this organization is trying to do this to me. Oh, now I see they want to engage me in one of their programs. They want me to do this because, you know, you're supposed to engage the donor. And so it's kind of like, I get it. Uh, but it seems sort of like maybe it, it's not a trick, but I understand the process. Like maybe 20 years ago before the internet, I didn't really get it in the same way. So that also, with all that knowledge and transparency must affect donors and how they see those who are asking for the monies. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really changed the dynamic of fundraising in the past five to 10 years. I think the sector has changed more in the past five to 10 years than it's changed in the past 50 as a result of the internet. And what this has done is it's put the power and control more in the donor's lap or their fingertips, really. Because in the past, older donors would just sort of send the check uh, religiously, almost. You know, they just get, they get the, the appeal, they send the check, and they don't know what's going on over there. But they felt good feeling that they are supporting the cause. So good, good enough. But nowadays, they can check they can look online. They can read, uh, you know, reviews and so on. Uh, it, 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 they can't, the charities can't hide anymore. So what we recommend is you actually give, you be the one giving them the information. You send them the video of the little girl, you know, and, and, and of what's going on. Because that way you're in, you're in more control. Um, it, it's kind of like, the car purchase business, you know, you used to go buy a car, it was always uncomfortable because you, uh, the salesperson had all, all the tricks, they had all the information. Well, now you go online, you're going to be darn well ready before you uh, buy that car because you've done all your research. What we're recommending, and this is essentially what our platform does, is it helps to, it's ideal to zero in on who's wealthy and can make a major, major impactful gift and then allow them to self-navigate online so that they move themselves through the consideration process without pressure and annoyance and, and all that. What do you say, Greg, to the when the uh, organizations call you up and they want to come to your house and present you with whatever information they have, one-on-one, -on -one, personal, or meet at their organization, yep. or, or either or or both. Does that work, or yeah. does that still work? Well, it works tremendously well, just like in any sales organization. Salespeople know that the best way to get closer to closing a deal is to have a face-to-face -face engagement. It's always the best way. Right, but the problem is, at least in the in the fundraising, the charitable sector, is that they call people who are not ready to relate at that level. I mean, that's a, that's a serious thing. Some fundraisers going to come over to your house. They want to take you to lunch. They want to give you a tour. You need to be ready for that level of engagement. And what's happened prior to us and and our inventions of 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 this. A new way of doing things is that they would just 
find out or decide if people were wealthy by trying to research them as much as possible, and then they'd interrupt them and ask them if they could visit to give them an update and so on, when you really know what they want to do is just ask you for money. So, of course, you say, no, don't come. You know, uh, but what, what the new age is, is calling for and what we've developed and, and explain in the book for people who don't want to buy our system, they can try to do it themselves, essentially, is that the trick is to provide opportunities for engagement that offer true value to the supporter, especially the wealthy VIPs, and let them self-navigate the education process, the engagement process, the immersion and involvement process. Those that have done that and done that a lot, and they watched the video, they did this, they did that, those are the people who will be most likely to want that face-to-face engagement because they're ready to realize the best versions of themselves. They want to see themselves and, as, as the hero in their own life story, as someone who did good and made massive impact and helped others. They're ready for not a fundraiser, but a facilitator to come and help them understand how they can exchange money for that level of value that makes them feel good, and this gets really deep, but when they're on their deathbed, they can look at themselves in the mirror and say, I did good. But what you're saying is it's a process. You can't just, know, okay, so-and-so has a lot of money. We want to get their money for our organization. I'm coming over to talk about it. You really have to if you That's want right. to get that kind of engagement. It is a process, and you can't skip the middle part or you're not going to get what you want. Exactly. It is a process. It's happens on the donor's timeline just because your leadership or your board is saying, hey, uh, Julie's got a lot of money and her husband just died, so go get her. She's got money. That's not nice. (laughs) That's not nice. I don't know what happens in these boardrooms. I mean, I've sat in them, and people all of a sudden lose their marbles. You know, they lose their humanity when they're looking at stats, and they don't have a donor right in front of them. Yeah, they forget that there's a real person there. It's not just the money. It's not just, it is all about the money, but it's not. We have to say goodbye. This is a very interesting conversation. I want to, so I want to mention your book again because people should go out and get it. Um, And they can continue with all, you know, there's a lot more obviously in the book. We literally have a minute left. Engagement fundraising, how to raise more money for less in the 21st century. We've been talking to uh, Greg Warner, who is the uh, CEO of Market Smart. Really nice, really good having you on the show today, Greg. Uh, give us a website we can go to. You can go to marketsmart.com. Yeah. You, you uh, can go to imarketsmart.com yeah. or to get the book, it's uh, engagementfundraisingbook.com. Great. Thanks so much. I'm Catherine Zox, your social Thank worker you. with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.